Luke chapter 5. As we near the fall each year, there tend to be days that afford us an opportunity to be intentional about getting the gospel of Jesus Christ out into our community. And I like to preach at this time of year, emphasizing the necessity of us being informal missionaries and taking the gospel out to those that live near us and those that we interact with. As a church grows, there is a tendency, and there's historical data to back this, to turn inward, to focus on the administrative needs of the assembled body, and to a great degree that is inescapable, and it is necessary, but we must be intentional about turning ourselves outward and going in the right direction, for lack of a better term. Years ago, the British agnostic Thomas Huxley had to leave early one morning to go from one speaking assignment to another. As he exited his hotel, he got into a horse-drawn taxi to work his way to the train station. He assumed that the hotel doorman had told the carriage driver that he was going to the train station. So he got into the carriage and gruffly, he yelled to the taxi driver and said, drive fast. The taxi driver, of course, obeyed. And after a short while, Huxley, somewhat familiar with the area, realized they were actually going in the opposite direction from the train station. So he yelled to the driver and he said, do you know where you're going? And the driver, without looking back, said, no, sir, but I'm going very fast. We have a tendency to go very fast, and oftentimes we're doing so in the wrong direction. Things become chaotic. And we need to have some standard to return to. We need to have some center that holds us. We need to be reminded, not by some empirical data, not by some ideology, but we return to the Scripture to stay on program and to make sure, though we are furiously driving, that we are doing so in the right direction. And here in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Lord is going to help some fishermen go the right direction. Now, I'll direct your attention there this morning. I'll begin reading in verse 1, a familiar story I know. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he, that is Jesus, stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. So also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon, And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, 
from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to the land, they forsook all and followed him. The emphasis of those 11 verses focuses in on Peter and Jesus. It's undeniable. The fact is, Peter had met Jesus prior to this moment, but he had not yet fully committed in his following of Jesus, and Jesus is about to teach him a lesson. About six months have passed from the baptism of Jesus Christ. He has been in Judea ministering. He has even cleansed the temple at that point. John the Baptist is now in jail, and for all intents and purposes, his ministry has come to a conclusion, and Jesus is launching out into his public ministry, and he's doing so in Galilee. Now, that's of note. You see, Galilee was in the northern part of the land of Israel. From a first century Jewish perspective, it was regarded as the outskirts. It was located far from the religious center that was Jerusalem. I think in a way, Jesus beginning his ministry up in Galilee is somewhat of a rebuke to the corruption that was going on in Jerusalem. And here on the outskirts in Galilee is where Jesus will find his fishers of men. As we just listened to him say to Simon, you will now catch men. It's interesting to me that as Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee by Capernaum one day, he finds some men to make disciples of. Mark tells us in his words how this happened, that Peter and Andrew and James and John are called. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, that is Jesus, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with hired servants and went after him. Now, I happen to believe that Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John were familiar with Jesus. Perhaps they had witnessed the miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. That's certainly possible. Though Jesus had begun his earthly ministry there in Capernaum, it's probable that Jesus even knew their names and that they had heard him teach. But Jesus singles them out in this moment and he calls them to follow him. I don't think this is the team that you or I would choose to assemble to take over Gospel Incorporated. How many of you have any recollection of the terror of being a child and the moment where people picked teams? Oh yeah. How many of you can remember in your mind standing there when it came and you had two captains and you were going to pick teams and you knew without any shadow of a doubt who was going to be picked first? Can you remember that? How many of it was it you? All right, we got a few. We got a few. How many of you can identify with the terror of knowing that you were probably going to be picked last? Yeah, there's a lot more of those honest people. It's no wonder we have anxiety and depression everywhere in the world. Stop picking teams. Jesus is picking teams, as it were, with intention. 
And I want you to understand that there is no way that any of us would have settled on this as our team. Certainly, Jesus could have started higher on the food chain than these individuals, but Jesus picks these ordinary men. Jesus picks Simon. Simon was impetuous. Simon was always ready with some word, even in our account this morning. He presses back on Jesus when Jesus tells him to cast his nets. I don't know that I would want Simon Peter on my staff. I don't want that kind of questioning attitude, that kind of impetuous nature. When you read of Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, you'll learn that in effect, he was always in the background attached to somebody else. In fact, of the four times that Andrew's name's, name is mentioned in the Gospels, he's always behind somebody else. And all he gets is four mentions. And at times, he's Simon Peter's brother. That doesn't bring to our minds a great leader. James and John are mentioned here. These guys, at times, are filled with selfish ambition. After having followed Jesus for three years, they're debating whether or not they should have the primary seat when Jesus sets up the kingdom. Simon was impetuous. Andrew, almost invisible. James and John, selfish ambition. This is not the kind of team that you and I would have wanted to assemble around ourselves, but this is exactly what Jesus does with intention. And what I have found is this, Jesus is still picking his team, as it were, with the undesirables. Scripture makes sure we know that. One old preacher said this, when Christ calls us by his grace, we ought not only to remember what we are, but we ought also to think of what he can make us. It did not seem a likely thing that lowly fishermen would develop into apostles, but that is exactly what happened. You see, when Mark tells us, he says that Jesus says, I will make you to become fishers of men. In effect, you can't go your own way. You can't go your own way with your own net. If you do, you will make nothing of it. And the Lord promises help. Follow him. Preach his gospel. Emulate his life. It is our greatest ambition in life to be a copy of somebody else and not an original. You see, when Jesus said, come after me, you could understand that as stick to me. The Greek writers would have used that phrase in their secular writing in that fashion. It was depicting a student who stuck to their teacher, closely associated, got on the road and traveled with them. Jesus is saying this in effect, if you will stick to me, If you will emulate my life, if you will eat what I eat and drink what I drink and go where I go and say what I say and sleep where I sleep, if you will become like me, you will become fishers of men, which indicates something. That if the gospel is not going out into our world as it is needed, it is not for lack of programming or even initiative, it is for lack of Christ-likeness in individual believers. Because if you and I are like Christ, we are taking the gospel out. The call was clear. Follow me, stick to me, and I will make something of you that you are not currently. Fishers of men. How would they become fishers of men? What tools did they have? Jesus is going to make it very clear. The tools of the trade. On this particular day in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching and a mass of people press in on him. 
Now, oftentimes, people pressed in on Jesus because they wanted him to perform some miracle, some sign, some wonder. In effect, they wanted a favor of him. But it is very clear in this account from Luke that on this occasion, people have pressed in around Jesus to hear the word of God. And that Jesus was preaching unto them the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, it's very characteristic that a crowd would press in on Jesus, and Jesus maybe has been pressed all the way to the edge of the Sea of Galilee. So he looks over at Simon Peter, and he notes that his boat is anchored there, and he asks Peter to shove his boat out from the shore a little bit, and we have the picture of Jesus sitting in the boat just offshore teaching the crowd of people, and we know he is employing the word of God, and he's conveying the good news of the kingdom of God. And we also have a tidbit from within this context that Peter has been up all night long. He's been laboring and he's been toiling. In fact, in the first part of Jesus' sermon, Peter's off to the side washing his nets. I can envision in my mind that Peter is now bobbing up and down, settled in the boat, baking in the sun while Jesus teaches. And I don't know about you, how many of you can imagine Peter's probably dozing off? And those of you that didn't raise your hand, it's because you're dozing off. (laughs) Peter's probably there, not maybe focused in. As Jesus begins, he's washing his net. And now, having been up all night, he's bobbing in the water, sitting in the sun, kind of fading in and out. Well, Jesus is about to teach him a lesson. And one of the things that Jesus will convey, we find rooted in verse 1. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear The Word of God. Make note of that expression, the Word of God. Now, if you are in the habit of marking in your Bible, you may circle that phrase and draw a line down to verse 5 where he says, Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let the nets down. The Word of God. Anything that Jesus said was exactly that. It was the Word of God. This scene is going to be all about the authority and the command of the Word of God. That phrase is one of Luke's favorites. Luke is is here the author, and he also authored the book of Acts. And 17 times in those two volumes, he uses that phrase, the Word of God. He's honing in on the fact that the Word of God is the power that Jesus took to the masses. It also indicates that the word of God was the power for the early church and their explosive growth. It's no different than now. The number one tool of the trade that we have in order for us to become fishers of men is the word of God. To this day, we believe that. To this day, we follow it. We obey it. We preach it. We teach the word of God. Either we believe that the word of God is the power or we do not. There is no middle ground. Oftentimes, we think that what people need is another program. What people need is another initiative. What people need is to have guilt layered on them. We have to be motivational. We have to be instructive or authoritative. When the Word of God is all of those things, either we believe it or we do not. You see, the world that is desperately lost in sin does not need necessarily more discourse. What they need is the Word of God, but not just the Word of God. They need individuals like us to obey it. Because if the Word of God is the number one tool of the trade, then obedience to the Word of God is the second. Notice this in verse 4. 
Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. Launch out. That is singular, which means he is talking specifically to Simon Peter. I want to teach you something. Take this, your boat, and go out into the deep. When he comes back and he says, let down your nets, that's plural, and I believe it indicates that Andrew is in the boat. They will then beckon for James and John to come out to help them. So this lesson really is for everybody. Launch out into the deep. Now don't miss what this command means. Simon, I want you to take us back out to the same spot you were in all night long and caught nothing. Let's do that again. I'm a terrible fisherman. I'm bad at most everything that requires patience. Fishing I'm bad at. My son and I, several weeks back, we were fishing a couple of times on vacation, and my style of fishing is I stand on the edge, I cast, reel it in, I cast, I reel it in, and I move. And then I cast, and I reel it in, and I cast, and I reel it in, and I move. Nothing's biting here. I get down, I cast once, I cast twice, pull it in, put the hook on the rod, and I go, this is dumb. There are no fish biting. Five or six casts, Not really going to get it done. Now imagine if you had stayed at a pond all night long and labored and it actually was your income and it was necessitated that you catch fish and after a 10 hour stretch in the glowing hours of the morning you wrap it and somebody says to you, hey, let's go fishing and let's go to this pond. You can understand why someone might be reticent to go back. There's nothing in there. It's not going to work. Peter's reticence is somewhat understandable. Now, I want you also to understand this. We know from historical precedent, and we understand from Scripture, that Jesus was the son, earthly speaking, of a carpenter. Which means Jesus probably understood the tools and the trade of carpentry. Also make note of this. The boat that Jesus gets in, it is declared to us, was Simon Peter's boat. The nets and the adjective that Jesus uses is they're your nets. I understand they're your nets. The expertise was Peter's. The experience of the hours from the night before was all Peter's. And now Peter, the experienced weathered and leathered fisherman who has all of the implements is taking advice from none other than a carpenter's son on fishing. You can grasp the reticence. I happen to have one of those jobs, pastoring, that everybody in the world thinks they can do. Well, you have a Bible too, and you read, and you have devotions, you can do it. But if I were to come to your job and sit next to you and say, let's open up the books of your business, I've been to seminary, I read some Spurgeon this morning, let me tell you how to run your business. You would not be interested in what I had to say. Now, you'd want me to pray before the donuts and coffee. I get my job. I understand. You don't want me in your books. You don't want me making executive decisions in your element. I don't know anything about it. And yet, Peter is in this moment in time following the words, the mandate of Jesus. I'm just saying I can somewhat understand his reticence. But I also am glad that Peter is now calm enough and smart enough to say, nevertheless, because you're the one saying it, I'll do this. Did you note the initiative 
of those disciples, becoming fishers of men was not theirs, but it was Jesus's. They didn't just sit around one day along the shore and say, you know what? I'm just sitting here thinking about my life. I think I'd like to be an evangelist. You know, I've been sitting here thinking what I'd like to do is traverse Galilee, get down into Judea, be hated by pretty much everybody, and afterwards surrender the rest of my life to propagate the gospel message, which will ultimately require my life. That sounds like a good plan for me. The impetus of this whole thing was Jesus bringing the disciples to the place where they had to obey his word. And so Peter, of course, says, nevertheless, because you've said this, even though this is my boat, even though these are my nets, even though I have experience out here, because you said it, I will do it. If Peter had not obeyed the mandate of Jesus, this miracle would not have happened. If Peter had not just submitted to the mandate of Jesus, that draught of fishes would not have been caught. And I say the same to you and to me. The preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ is to this world foolishness. It doesn't make sense. It is of a spiritual nature. It is an uncomfortable thing to confront somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we simply unpack this story, that is precisely what is happening. Jesus, with intention, is selecting ordinary people to give them an extraordinary cause. The press on them is to stick to Jesus, to be just like Jesus is, to be like Christ, and to speak his message. The responsibility is theirs to actually undertake the task of telling people the good news of the kingdom. They have to obey it. We have to learn to obey God's authority, and and his authority tells us to give the gospel message. I'll say it this plain. There are believers and there are disciples. Disciples undertake the teaching of their master, and I'm saying to you, they're plainly going out with the gospel message. I think sometimes we salve our conscience by being a part of an evangelistic organization. We salve our conscience when we see some spiritual upward mobility within the church that we attend, but it does not, pun intended, let us off the hook. As we individual believers become like Christ and his disciples and see the responsibility that we have, we will propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ with purpose. So I can say if it's been six months or it's been a year or it's been a decade or two decades or three since you have shared the gospel message with somebody, don't fool yourself into thinking you're a disciple of Christ because Christ-likeness results in fishing for men. The word of God is the tool. Obedience to the word of God is necessitated. And then there is certainly some humiliation. What does that mean? We're to be humbled by the power of God. When we pick up in verse 6, and they had obeyed Jesus, the draught of fishes came into the nets. Now, understandably, Jesus could have caused these fish to swim into the shore and jump into Peter's boat. He could have done that. But he wanted Peter to cast his net into the water. It's the exact same for us. And when this draught of fishes enters the net, this multitude of fishes, the net begins to break. You can see the chaotic scene. 
Peter, Andrew are beckoning for James and John to hustle up and get their boat out to where they are. The fish come into the boats. As they're pulling them in, so many, the boats begin to sink. And Peter's response as he sees Jesus in that moment is exactly like Isaiah's when he saw God and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Woe is me. When Peter saw Jesus as Jesus is to be seen, he was not full of himself, nor was he impressed with the success of a boat full of fish. Rather, he was impressed with the presence and the power of Jesus. So I reiterate as I backtrack, if you and I are not propagating the gospel, it is not because we lack a program to plug into or an initiative to be motivated by. It's because we're not like Christ. And if we have the powerful word of God, which we do, and we are not obeying it, then we cannot expect results. But when results come, we are not impressed with ourselves. We are undone because we know that anything that happens is all because of Christ and not because of us. So I can say again, if we're not informal missionaries intentionally taking the gospel to a lost world, it's because we don't see Jesus as he is to be seen. It's an us problem. It's a very real thing. Jesus had preached the word of God and now he's going to deliver the word of God to his disciples. As they come back into shore, he says to them, now you should follow me and we will become fishers of men. Notice something in verse 10 and 11. Jesus said unto Simon, fear not. Simon is afraid. He's amazed by Jesus' power. From henceforth thou shalt catch men. Single ladies have been trying to do that ever since, right? And the ones that have succeeded would say to you, stop trying. It's not worth it. Catch men. That's an interesting thing. And when they had brought their ships to land, get this, they forsook all and followed him. Nets, boats, experience. And they follow Jesus. There is something quite interesting about that word, catch men. It's a little nuance that is in the language. Catch men is a combination of two Greek words. One which means alive and another which means to catch or to hunt. The exact sense of that word would be in effect to catch alive. From now on, you are to catch men alive. You are to catch men for life. Now, interestingly, that phrase is used only one other time outside of the Gospels. And it's used in 2 Timothy 2.24. Listen in. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, and to teach, apt to teach, patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. That word, taken captive, is the Greek word, catch. It's the same idea, which indicates to us that there is a game afoot. The devil is endlessly, relentlessly, and ceaselessly attempting to catch men for death. And we have the responsibility, mandated by Jesus, to catch men for life. 
And we know that eternal life only comes through Jesus Christ, the author of life. Which means this, if we are not doing our job to catch men for life, we must do so with the understanding that the devil never takes a moment off and he is catching them for death. And by and large, we're losing the game because we are not taking the word of God, which is the power, in obedience with intention out, seeing Jesus as we should see him propagating the good news of the kingdom of God. It's ultimately a failure on our part. Jesus is basically saying Satan and his world system is seeking to catch men for his kingdom. And I want to train you to be just like me and to go out and catch them for my kingdom. As you look back over your life, as you look back over the last six months or year or two years, have you even shared Jesus with one individual? If you say, well, no, I haven't, then you're not a disciple, you're a believer. Or, to return to the beginning, maybe you're driving really fast. You're just not driving in the right direction. You say, yeah, but I don't know what to say. No, Peter didn't either. Every time he opened his mouth, he tended to say the wrong thing, just like me. You say, well, I'm really shy. You mean just like Andrew, who the four times he's mentioned was always standing behind somebody else? You don't understand, I have to really guard against carnal ambition. You mean like James and John? They're just like us. It's not about becoming like Peter or James or John or Andrew. It's about becoming like Jesus. And if we become like Jesus, we will become fishers of men. So if we are not fishing for men, then we are not like Jesus. Let's stop pretending. Either we believe the power of the word or we do not. Either we are obeying the master or we are not. Because the truth is, there are life and death consequences. And the devil is always working, and he knows largely we're taking time off. But if we don't return to these basic tenets of the faith, if we don't get in the carriage and drive furiously in the right direction, it's all a waste. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.